Uh, going back to your AgiCon 101, optimal production versus maximum production. Just because you can produce 300 bushel an acre corn doesn't mean that's the most productive point to be at. Welcome to the 280th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Zach Knudsen and Brooke Calloway think a lot about optimal production versus maximum production. For example, during a recent LSB Soil Health Pasture Walk on a hot July evening, the couple, who are in their mid-20s, made it clear that they don't see corn and soybean production as the optimal use of the 177 acres they farm in southeastern Minnesota. During the past few years, they've been transitioning row crop acres to perennial pasture, utilizing the grazing of cover crops to build soil health and break up pest cycles. They're also establishing trees in their grazing areas to create a civil pasturing system for their herd of registered shorthorns, which consist of 30 cow-calf pairs along with yearlings. But perhaps the most striking example of getting optimal productivity out of their land is a system they've set up where they're growing vegetables in areas that were bale grazed the previous winter. During the tour, Zach and Brooke led participants through these fenced-off bright green patches that exist in one of their permanent pastures, and, in one case, in their barnyard. As we parted the grasses that had grown up in the bedding pack, a riot of peppers, tomatoes, cabbages, beets, and broccoli revealed themselves. As Zach pointed out, their vegetable plots won't win any blue ribbons at the fair, but they're a low-labor, relatively pest-free way to get productivity out of parcels of land that may otherwise produce little economic value during the depths of summer. While many may see stepping off the conventional corn-soybean path and mixing grazing, vegetables, and silvopasturing as a gamble, Zach, who works in agricultural risk management, actually considers this system a safer way to start a farm business. That's particularly true at a time when sky-high input costs, fluctuating markets, and extreme weather are making commodity crop production akin to taking a spin on an agricultural roulette wheel. After the field day, I talked to Brooke and Zach about their focus on getting optimal production out of this land and why they don't see a future in corn and soybean farming. Zach started out by describing three methods they've been testing out in the process of converting cropland to pasture. So we've got, we're testing out three different methods of converting cropland from conventional corn and soybeans to perennial pastures. The first method we tried was in April 2020. We took a couple fields that were, you know, fringe pieces that weren't really worth growing as corn and beans, three, four acres, and we decided to just drill in some uh, perennial pasture mix right into the corn stubble. You know, no sort of pretreatment or anything. Just put it in there to see what would happen. It actually worked out really well. We didn't really follow any conventional wisdom in that approach in that we didn't use a nurse crop, we didn't prepare with any sort of cover crops, and we actually grazed it for the first time six weeks after planting, which is a big no-no by all conventional (laughs) advice. We grazed it six times, but we left, we stopped grazing it mid-August, and the following year it was a beautiful stand of grass that did very, very well. So it rebounded, and it survived a lot of the abuse that should have knocked it out but didn't. The next field we planted in April 2021. It was soybeans the year before and we no-till drilled a mixture of a five-way perennial mix with oats and forage peas as the nurse crop. After a couple months we baled the oats and peas, made baleage out of it, 
and we stockpiled it for winter. Once the ground got below 25 degrees and we figured it was dormant, we went out there and grazed it. We were advised not to touch it that year and to take a crop of hay off it for the first season this year. We went against that and just grazed it once it was dormant and this spring it came up very nicely. It outperformed our winter cereal rye as far as early spring growth and we've grazed through it all once. Uh, there was about 30 acres of that we didn't get to in time to graze it before we were concerned about losing all nutritional value. So we baled that. Uh, we had incredible tonnage off that uh, four bales per acre or four and a half really and they were about they were five by sixes so probably 15 1600 pounds bailed that now we're going to let it rest and come back and graze it later the third approach that we're trying is still a work in progress there's a field we planted to winter cover crops in october of 2020 following soybeans and then spring of 2021 or rather summer we planted summer annuals uh, we grazed the winter cover crop we grazed the summer annuals august of 2021 we planted a winter cover mix again we grazed that last fall it was kind of a mixture of the winter mix of winter cereal rye vetch and daikon radish along with the sorghum that was left over from the summer annuals so we grazed that in the fall and then in the spring we grazed the regrowth of the rye and the vetch we grazed it down really hard trying to knock back the rye before we planted another batch of different summer annuals this summer. Uh, the vetch came roaring back. Uh, a lot of it is out there, almost too much. <laughs> it's pretty. I'll say yeah, that. <laughs> it's, it's a field of purple. <laughs> yeah, uh, gorgeous. And now it's we're waiting for the summer annuals to grow up and kind of balance out the high ratio of vetch, and we'll be grazing that this fall. Then... Probably August time frame, we're going to plant, the entire field will get planted to Austrian winter peas and icicle peas. Half the field will also have a perennial pasture mix in it. Then next spring, we will plant the other half, we'll interseed the perennials on the other half. Uh, we were going to use triticale as part of the winter cover mix, but since the rye also came back with the vetch and we have such a strong stand of rye seed out there we're just going to count on that to give us our small grain nurse crop for that field then we'll take a hay crop off that next summer uh, when the timing's right for the rye and the peas and kind of go from there and see how one field with multiple years of cover crops compares to a field of uh, just traditional perennials with a nurse crop compared to just putting the perennials into corn stubble and going with it. So I find that really interesting and then kind of an added twist on there that we that you showed us and Brooke maybe you can talk about this is the bale grazing system that you're not just in bale grazing's not it's a little bit new but it's not brand new I've seen it on other farms but what you folks are doing is really interesting with the vegetable production and I was wondering if you so you took us through I think there are four different spots again it looks a little crazy I, I gotta say but there's a method to the madness can you describe it a little bit I thought that was really neat what you're doing there I don't really know if there was much method to the madness <laughs> um, but it was really about focusing on putting the bales close enough together um, to making sure that there's enough residue left over to create a mulch mm -hmm. pack to really plant 
the vegetables in. So a really nice heavy mulch pack so that it keeps the weeds away for most of the summer. Um, and then once the weeds start growing up, your plants are already established and they're big enough that they're really not competing with the weeds. Um, so that's really the method that we're trying to go with is we want vegetables, but we don't really want to spend all the time weeding and doing all the extra work that comes with that. So it's just figuring out what exactly can we do, and really that mulch pack of the bale grazing is really helpful. Yeah, and the kind of the way it was set up, you have this kind of uh, nylon fencing that you've set up around it, and then you'll you'll put in your poly wire around it to keep the, the cattle from getting into that. But it's um, uh, you've let that grow up, and it sounds like that bef- in a lot of these areas that you were doing the bell grazing, this was stuff that was really rough looking. It was not, maybe it was bare a lot or wasn't producing, but it was really a, a real nice kind of verdant forage that you had going there. Yeah, I think just keeping the nutrients, like putting nutrients back in the soil. So like having the bale graze. So we're allowing the nutrients to seep, like the rain to re-allow the nutrients to really seep into that soil. So you're never really taking nutrients off. And when you're not taking the nutrients off, that's really allowing the soil to really build more and more. So it just gets better. Tell me, kind of give us a list of all the vegetables you got in there. We kind of looked around. You said, one of the things I think Zach said was you got to get really good at identifying plants because, (laughs) but there's some real productivity of vegetables going on in there um so we have about six different kinds of peppers if not more then we have about 10 different kinds of tomato plants um we have six different cabbage plants Um, we got some beets some radishes three different bean plants we have three broccoli and brussels sprouts and then we have a kale and brussels sprout new developmental plant that we're testing out for a greenhouse nearby. And don't forget the huckleberries. Yes, the huckleberries. <laughs> those are going to be interesting. I think we're actually going to pick those this week and see if we can get a nice can out of them and see what they turn out like. Well, one of the advantages, so one of the disadvantages you talked about a little bit is that harvest time might be a little interesting, but one of the advantages is I know there were some vegetable producers that were here and they were impressed that you do not have tomato blight. We've grown tomatoes in the past and When those leaves touch the ground, we got to prune them off because you get all sorts of soil-borne pathogens that are really bad with tomato leaves and make the plants sick. Our plants, we haven't trellised them. So, for example, there's a cherry tomato plant out there that has split into six separate stalks that are each at least four feet tall, and it's just plopped flat on the ground. And yet there's no sign of any sort of fungus or infection on any of the leaves in over 140 tomato plants crammed into one area. And our theory as to why that disease isn't there is A, we started with the bale residue. So there was protection, there was already armor on top of the soil. We're not dealing with bare soil that is transferring the pathogens. But also the other thing, we're not picking all the weeds. We've got all this grass that grew up when it was cool out, and they've kind of created this buffer or this mat under the tomatoes that even though the tomatoes are laying out sprawled on the ground, they're not actually on the soil. Some of them would probably look better if we trellised them, but the grass is also providing somewhat of a support system under the plants that it is keeping them up a bit. And it seems like it's doing it enough. And we haven't sprayed any sort of fungicide, pesticides. We haven't sprayed anything out there. We put the plants in. We watered them when we transplanted them. And we 
walked away. They are very healthy looking plants. We have the same tomato plants planted up in pots by the house that were planted about, you know, maybe the next day when we weren't so tired anymore. <laughs> exact same varieties came from the exact same place that are showing some of those spots and signs. And the only thing we can attribute it to is that armor on the soil from the bale residue and the grass kind of keeping it up. I heard, I don't know if it was you, Zach, or Brooke, maybe both of you explained it. Part of the advantage to this, too, this system is these are areas that might be, uh, especially this time of year, not super productive. They, they might be kind of almost sacrifice areas. But this is the time of year when vegetables kind of come into their own. So you're getting, you got the grazing out of there, you got the bale grazing, you got the building the soil health and, and getting that that armor on there. But now you're, it's almost like you're getting a double crop off of it in a way. Yeah, and we're really seeing that up in our barnyard. Since we had that really late spring and we were feeding hay, you know, into May, in our barnyard where we fed those hay bales, there is no grass growing. It's just bale residue. But we went in and we planted like your zucchini, pumpkin, watermelon, sweet corn, cucumbers. Just took those seeds and just pushed them into the mulch. We didn't even have to dig them into the ground. Just get them under the mulch, get them covered with a little bit of moist soil or mulch. And I mean, they're just thriving. And we're standing out there, there's a couple little patches where the grass is maybe four or five inches tall. And, you know, it's been resting since May, and that's all that's come through that mulch. But now we've got plants, I mean, the zucchini's already got a flower on it, you know, three weeks after planting. So we're going to be getting all sorts of productivity off that patch. That, like you said, Brian, is it wouldn't have been productive. Yeah. So we're taking our opportunity cost to produce those vegetables for land is zero. You're not taking anything out of production that wasn't already going to be out of production. Yeah. And we just built a little electric fence around those areas and to keep the cows out. It uh, just happened that it's in a nice spot that we were actually able to use the border of that fence to help direct our flow of cattle into our corral for working them. So it made life a little bit easier by happenstance, but just working around that, I think I'm really excited about seeing those come through. Well, that's something that, 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 that reminded me of. I, you, you work in financial risk management, and I've heard you talk about this before, in that one of the things you really look at is it might not be the most productive kind of in volume base, but you're looking at profitability, and that's something that maybe farmers could really benefit from is kind of looking at that the profitability rather than always looking at how much yield am I getting per acre, that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, going back to your AgEcon 101 optimal production versus maximum production. Just because you can produce 300 bushel an acre corn doesn't mean that's the most productive point to be at. Yeah, we focus a lot more on the optimal productivity rather than maximum productivity. When you think back to your AgEcon 101 and you're looking at the best point of production is where your, your additional revenue equals your additional cost. You can produce more, but it all, all of a sudden you're putting in too much to get that additional production that you're not maximizing profit. So we keep that in the back of our mind of, you know, going out there and picking these weeds all the time is, that's an input. You could be doing other things with your time. And our tomatoes and peppers and things we're growing in this bale grazing, they're not going to produce the maximum amount of pounds of tomatoes. We're not going to win any county fair awards of how big our fruit is. But if we're able to produce a good quality product and not have to do really anything other than put it in the ground and go out and pick it. I think that's really, it's nice. Yeah. 
you know, you don't have those miserable days also weighing on your mental health of always out there pulling weeds and pulling weeds. You have the excitement of planting and the joy of harvest and you cut out the rest of the stuff. <laughs> um, the other thing is, even though we're not getting optimal production on it because the ground isn't usable, by planting those peppers and tomatoes after we go in and really harvest them in fall, um, the cows will go out there and they will be grazing the plants. So we will be getting some use off of that forage at least this year still. Mm-hmm. It'll probably be actually more than what we would have got had we not planted the peppers and tomatoes there. So they are getting forage and they will eat them all up and they will be gone by the time they are done. Yeah. So One of the things that there was a lot of interest in on the, the, the um, pasture walk that we did, and it's another example of you really are getting away from the row crop system as much as possible it looks like is the silvo pasture can you describe a little bit what you're kind of doing with that and some of the one of the things you had mentioned was the benefits of shade and that's just not like well it'd be nice for the cattle to feel comfortable there's some real productivity issues with having that kind of natural shade system that you're trying to set up yeah silvo pasture is just this huge rabbit hole to get into since we're converting former cropland into pasture you know we want to be able to rotationally graze and we really need to bring some of the trees back to the landscape to have that shade you know there's all sorts of research studies out there showing the impacts of having some shade and tree shade is proven to be far superior to any sort of like tents or umbrellas which are great short-term solutions but we plan to be here for a long time so putting those trees out there is is just a long-term investment, but it can impact things such as animal weight of gain, rate of gain, your fertility with your breeding. We like to have May-June calves, which means late July through August breeding. You got to keep those cows cool. You really got to keep those bulls cool to keep everything working as it should. We run all red and white cattle, so we don't have you know the hide color issue to, to set us back. But you know why not have the shade there to? Pr- help where it can Uh, and then the trees that we're planting are all at least dual purpose if not triple purpose they provide shade for the cattle but then you know the oaks we burn wood for for warming our house oak wood you know if we plant 25 30 trees every year 10 15 years down the road we'll just start harvesting those and we'll have a nice supply of easy trees to get to we've got honey locust out there to provide some pods for the animals to eat and then honey locust is also a nitrogen fixer so it'll pull nitrogen out of the air and supplement the grass around it to increase that productivity. Uh, We planted hazelnuts that will harvest some of those nuts for human use but whatever we don't get to you know sheep or we could we could even bring in pigs start having pigs grazing in between the rows in the fall making use of that sort of stuff. But if someone's interested in silvopasture a really great resource that I would encourage them to go to is trees for grazers grazers spelled g-r-a-z-i-e-r-s dot com austin unruh is a fantastic resource for learning what sort of trees are working in silvo pasture with livestock give us a rundown so you planted i think it was just this spring right that you planted so you, how many trees you planted and what what were all the varieties we planted busy spring <laughs> yeah we we planted 256 trees Uh, We did 70 hazelnuts, 37 hybrid poplar, uh, 25 red oak, 25 swamp white oak, somewhere around 40-ish honey locust, a lot of chestnuts and persimmons, and that pretty much covers it. And 
then we did four apple trees for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and I, what, I, what was interesting was, because I think you're always thinking about getting value off that land. And that's what's, you know, the silver pasturing, because it's going to be several years for many of these trees, you know, decades in some cases. But you're going to get grazing value off of that in the meantime. So you've put fiberglass rod in there in the, what is that called, the tree productor? The... Yeah, we use the Plantra, P-L-A-N-T-R-A, tree tubes. They're 71 inches, so it's tall enough to protect it from deer and cattle from grazing. Uh, it's a fiberglass stake, and then the tube around it is the same plastic they use on greenhouses, but like the firm polycarbonate type. And then there's twist ties on there so that it protects the tree. It creates a mini greenhouse environment to help the tree grow faster. It's ventilated to prevent any sort of fungus growth. But then also, since the whole thing is plastic, it's insulated. So we can actually take our poly wire and hang it on the zip ties on the post and they kind of serve as temporary fence posts yeah. for putting up our pastures so we don't have to set as many posts out there to create all these different areas. Yeah. You're young farmers and first of all I'm really happy and struck by the fact that you see opportunities in agriculture because that's doesn't that's kind of the conditional wisdom as of there is young, younger people don't see a future in agriculture but the other thing is you see a future not in corn soybean conventional system you're kind of moving this farm into a perennial system kind of thing i mean that sounds like that's really a conscientious effort that you that's the future you see and you work in farm uh, financial risk and so you must see this as maybe a lower risk option uh, zach i don't know yeah it's got its own unique risks uh, the capitalization rate really works against us with how long it takes to get established. But one of the calls I was in earlier last week, we talked about the struggles of the various cash grain operations that the spring's too wet, it's too dry, it's too hot, it's too cold. And we really haven't had the, quote, Goldilocks year for quite a few years. And we're really waiting for one of those to really help out the farmers. But someone in the call made the comment that the way things have gone it those goldilocks years are getting harder and harder to come by there's just more volatility out there and when you're dealing with new seeds every single year there's a lot of things that can hurt that can set those back versus we're dealing with perennials that they've got their root systems they can withstand the volatility and kind of create a bit more of a stable situation you know with, vol with more volatility comes higher highs and lower lows and it's great when you're on those highs and if you can catch them at the right time you're going to do really well but though there's just as many losers as there are winners in those volatile games so we're looking more at the stability and designing our systems to be built for longevity not just for us but even thinking ahead to future generations because we won't be here forever we're young and seems like we have a lot of time but in the span of that oak tree we're a blink in the eye that's sort of at least my vision for it is creating something that can withstand the volatility and give us a sense of stability <laughs> For more on grazing and profitability, see LSB's Soil Health page at landstewardshipproject.org. A link to a previous interview with Zach Knutson is available on the podcast page for Ear to the Ground, episode number 280 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly. 
If you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.